Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with feds or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in this podcast are those of the individuals involved, and the information presented does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Any opinions that I express in this podcast are my own and not of my employer. Welcome back to another episode of Staying Connected. This is the last episode of this season, and today we're going to talk with Alyssa Hanneman, who was diagnosed with VEDS after an initial misdiagnosis with classical EDS. A colon rupture during pregnancy prompted genetic testing. Please be advised that in this episode, we discuss suicide and suicide intent. If you or someone you know needs help, there are resources available to you. In the U.S., you can get help by calling or texting 988 the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 24-7. If you are outside of the U.S., I've linked a list of hotlines and resources in the episode show notes. At the end of the show, I will share some info about community events coming up and some updates about the next season. Before we go to the interview, if you want to support this show, I'd love for you to join my Patreon. You can join for just 5 or $10 a month, and your support helps me continue to produce this show and create podcasts and videos about beds. I've linked the Patreon in the episode show notes, and I just want to give a shout out to my patrons who have already been supporting the show. This podcast means so much to me, and I couldn't do it without your support, so thank you so, so much. My top tier patrons are listed in the episode show notes. Don't forget, you can also support the show by simply sharing this podcast with people you know, which helps us raise awareness of ads around the world. Thanks so much. Hey, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for sharing your story with VEDS or vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome with everybody. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thanks, Katie, for having me on your podcast. Um, Hello, everybody. My name is Alyssa Hanneman. And where are you from? How old are you? Um, I am currently living in Parker, Colorado, which is near the Denver area, and I am Currently, um, I'll be 45 this fall, and um, I have, I'm married um, almost uh, 21 years to my husband, Chad, and I have one biological son that is also diagnosed beds. Um, He's living um, about four or five hours away um, from us, and then we have an adopted daughter, that is 19 with um, some cognitive special needs as well. Well, thank you so much for, again, for sharing your story. When were you diagnosed with that? 
So originally, I was diagnosed with what I believe they call now as the classical type of EDS back when I was eight years old. And um, back then, there was very little information about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome in general. No one had ever heard of it. And so I had to go to lots of appointments at our local children's hospital. And um, I had some heart-related complications um, and lots of bruising and joint dislocations and instability that brought those um, diagnoses along. But it wasn't until my early 20s when I was 28 weeks pregnant and my colon ruptured and I was in the emergency room. And through that process, I was diagnosed officially with VEDS. Wow. So how did they, how did they handle that, um, colon perforation while you were pregnant? Like how, take me through some of that. So it was, I remember I, I was, um, originally I knew I'd be a high risk pregnancy. Um, but at that time they really thought that I would just deliver early. And so I was, um, at a friend's house and I had quit my regular job as an orthodontic assistant and was gonna do some direct sales from home for flexibility. And so we were signing the paperwork and all of a sudden during that appointment, I had what felt like, like I was hit by lightning um, and I got excruciating abdominal pain that wrapped around my side. So um, I had them, my friends called the ambulance and from that point on, once I got into the emergency room, the rest of the story was put back together for me um, once I came out of a, a coma, actually, um, because I don't remember leaving the emergency room. So I had got to the hospital. They um, It was a different hospital than what I was supposed to deliver at because I was completely across town. And so no one knew me there. Um, none of my doctors were there and I, they basically were watching me. They couldn't find, or they didn't identify that I had a perforation, um, at all. So I was there for a whole seven hours and before they basically told my husband, your wife is passing away. And, but Joel, our son was showing signs of distress and so they had him sign paperwork for an emergency C-section. And it was in that surgery, they, um, they went in for the C-section. And when they um, went in for the procedure, stool poured out of my abdomen. And it became a very serious um, situation. Of course, I was septic at that point. Um, Joel was born early at 28 weeks, two pounds, seven ounces. And um, I was put into a drug and coma and had multiple complications, was given a colostomy. Um, and I ended up spending a six and a half weeks in a coma and then um, ended up having some other surgeries. I ended up bleeding into my right lung during that time. Uh, they ended up giving me, I was on a ventilator for so long that they had to do a trach. And during that trach is when they did a skin biopsy. Um, to um, my childhood geneticist said, you need, we need to test her for beds. I, he later told me that he wished that he would have done that um, 
testing for me earlier on and something just caused him not to want to do that. And then of course, we then wanted to test Joel once I got out of the hospital. Um, so I was in the hospital for six and a half weeks. And then Joel was sent via ambulance to a different hospital that could take care of his unique needs as a, as a preemie. And he had complications as well, ended up getting a hole in his lung because of having, you know, the sensitive tissues as well. And um, was in the hospital for 10 weeks as um, in the NICU. And um, I came out of the hospital um, and I was given the diagnosis of the vets. And I remember being at home. So this is, I mean, almost 21 years ago now. And I will never forget making the mistake of Googling vascular EDS and reading the first paragraph and having it say, you know, sudden death will occur at any time due to large vessel rupture. And I remember thinking, what in the heck am I supposed to do with that? I was this new 20 year old mom and I, I mean, I felt like a ticking time bomb like that. My life was over and I, in my mind, decided that Joel did not have it. I think it was very a self-protective measure. And um, I read that it was 50-50. And so I was like, this is, you know, he won't have it. And um, it turns out that I'm the only one in my family that does have, diet, was diagnosed with VEDS. And so no other family members have it. And I remember feeling very gypped. Like I, I'm one of six siblings. So for our family, that's really rare that I would have been the one that it originated with. And then my one and only biological child would end up having it. So I want to go back to when you were in the hospital or just getting out of the hospital even. I mean, mm -hmm. you went in like 28 weeks pregnant and then you woke up basically and had, you know, you had had your baby, you have a colostomy bag. And you almost died. Like you were on a ventilator and a coma for six and a half weeks. Like how did, how did you get through that period of time? Like, what did that feel like even before the vet's diagnosis? So up until that point, I didn't have anything major happen. And this experience would be the marker, I guess, of everything that I would compare a difficult vet's situation moving forward all the, almost 20 years, basically. It was catastrophic for not only Chad and I, we were married less than a year, and it was um, horrific for my entire family um, because his family was out of state. This was their first grandchild being born. And so I literally compared all, like that I thought was the worst thing that could ever happen um, with beds. And unfortunately, um, I would find out that there was a lot of other things that were going to come down the pike. But um, as a young person, I have always 
I think having this diagnosis and feeling different as a child, I was always getting hurt. I had three joint dislocations by the seventh grade. I was covered in bruises, band-aids, and I felt so different than everybody else. So I was feisty. I didn't want my life to slow down. And so I was pretty much a get up and just keep running kind of person. And back um, when this happened, I definitely dealt with it that way to some degree. I remember um, just wanting to move on as quickly as possible um, to get up on my feet and to just put it behind me and then move on and um, didn't I didn't really want to focus on it. And I think that I was self-protecting um, from the enormity of the situation. And then being a new parent, um, I had to wrap myself around um, just figuring out how to be a mom. And um, so coming out of the hospital, I think I didn't deal with things in a healthy way, the way that... Um, I would have hoped that maybe I could, you know, have done it. And so my husband and I, what it changed for us is that we no longer related to people our age, <laughs> um, newlyweds. Um, it changed the whole dynamic of like, we were, you know, putting together funeral plans and um, documentation for medical power of attorney and, planning to not, I basically started planning to not be around. Um, and so it wasn't, we didn't fight about normal stuff. We, we became this united front that was gonna, um, you know, overcome this diagnosis. And what I remember is I got the diagnosis for Joel. He was little, so he was two pounds, seven ounces when he was born. And so he had to, he got out of the hospital and then had to get to a certain birth weight before we could do the blood work to diagnose him um, to see if he had vets. And so um, when we got that diagnosis, I had just, so I'm backing up a little bit here. I want to describe to you kind of, so I didn't even know really what a colostomy was at that point when I was in the hospital. So when I came out of the coma, I wasn't really sure that I had even had a baby. Um, I was really foggy. I thought maybe I dreamed it. I had had lots of um, scary dreams because of side effects of the medications and being in a coma. And so I had short-term memory loss as well. And so I had to have my husband tell me what had happened over and over. I would cry, I would get overwhelmed and then I'd forget it and he'd have to tell me again. And that was really hard on him and on me, but he also took pictures and my parents had a hard time with that, but I am so grateful for the pictures he took of my progress while I was in a coma. And I had been in the hospital bed for so long that I lost the strength to walk. So I had to learn how to walk again. I had to um, go through therapy and learn how to brush my hair and my teeth and everything. And um, 
I was just motivated to get up and out of the hospital and get on with life. And so a lot of the doctors were surprised at how quickly I recovered. And I do attribute that also one to I just my fight for life. And then two, I was young. And so my body, even though I was fighting this new diagnosis, I was used to like, like, I'm going to just get up and we're going to deal with this. And I wanted life to get back to normal of whatever that looked like. And so they said I would need to be in recovery, like rehab for like a year. And I ended up only being in rehab for a year and a half, or I'm sorry, a week and a half, a week and a half out of a year. I busted a move and was motivated to get out of the hospital. And, um, when I realized, you know, I had had all these surgeries and then I had this big hole in my neck. Um, and that surprised me too. I had no idea that they wouldn't sew the closing shut in my neck, um, from the having a trach. And I had to do this random test with blue dye, um, and pray that it wouldn't come out of my neck. And that's how they knew that that it had healed. And so I was learning all of this stuff about medical things. I had no idea. Um, and looking back on it, it just, it, it did change our life forever. Um, and then, so I knew I didn't want to have a colostomy and I wanted to feel as normal as I could. And I really struggled with being a new bride and in a relationship for less than a year and coming out of the hospital, I didn't recognize myself. Um, I had scars all over the place. They had opened up my entire abdomen. Um, like I, I joked with my son over the years that I literally, like they opened me up and took me apart to get him out because that's what it felt like. And, um, you know, almost lost my life to have him. And I'm so grateful. Um, when I came out of the coma, there was another stark memory that I have. And that was the surgeon that did my surgery was so shaken um, when she went in. She went in to do the, the C-section and poked her finger through my uterine wall. It was so thin. And so the day I came out of coma, she grabbed my hand and her face was like she came like face to face with me in the hospital bed and said, do not ever get pregnant again. You will not live. And I will never forget that because, like I said, I I was still trying to figure out even where I was. And if I so then she confirmed it, I did have a baby, but it scared her so badly as a surgeon that she wanted to be clear that I would never try and so not only had I survived this and then all this was going on, but now this idea that we were going to have any other kids naturally was snatched away from us in an instant from someone I had never met. And um, I had a lot of depression that I didn't realize um, from this because I came from a big family. And so I thought, you know, we would be able to have more kids. And we talked about adoption. And so... Um, I just put all my energy into that um, and knew, okay, at some point we'll adopt then um, because we didn't want to have an only child. We wanted Joel to have a sibling. Yeah. And so when Joel was diagnosed then, I mean, it was a, it was sometime after he was born. 
or actually, actually after he came home and like got up to the, the weight yeah. that he could have the blood test. Right. Um, yes. and I know like that had to have been, I mean, you're going through so much this whole time and it just seems like, you know, one thing after another that is being piled on. And then your son is diagnosed with this. Um, how, like, how did you just like, did you still deal with that with the, with the, like, just get up and keep moving kind of mentality? Like, how did you get through that? So um, we went ahead and had the testing done and it was um, a few months after down the road because I had to wait a certain period of time. I think it was a minimum of six months before I could have my colostomy reversed. And so I had just had that surgery and was in recovery. And um, so my husband had come in, I had just gotten home and he shared with me that the results had come back. And like I had said earlier in my, I think in my self-protection, I had decided he didn't have it. And um, even my geneticist doctor said, I'm pretty sure that he does. And um, so I had just put that aside. And I remember being so angry and um, because I, I kind of had like a mini movie played through my mind of all the conversations and all the things that we would talk about and the things that he wouldn't be able to do. And I mean, I grew up with it. I, I could, I knew what it felt like. And so I, I cried and, um, it took me, I think the full three solid days, I just sobbed and, um, have a very strong faith. Our family has a very strong faith. And I remember being so angry with God, like this was my one child that I had prayed and wanted to have and how on earth I, I remember saying to my husband, I would go in and have another surgery, any amount of surgeries, if it meant that he wouldn't have to have it. And people would try to give us advice and be comforting and say, well, you, you know, you're going to be a great mom and you know, and while that was really well-meaning, had nothing to do with my ability to be a mom. It was that I knew that my kid was going to have problems and difficulties that other kids wouldn't. And, but then what I did do is we decided at that point that I, we made it so that he could do as much as possible within the realm of safety that he could. I could, it was just something intuitive for me that I, I knew like, okay, you want to do this. Okay. Well, we will work it out so that you can do it in this way. And so I tried not to tell him no as much as possible, but I also made sure that from a very young age that he took responsibility for his own limitations. And I think that's something in the vets community that if I can impart on other parents is our children have to learn how to manage their own health care and their own, their own diagnosis. And the earlier that for us in our family, for Joel, I felt like I would empower him not to have other people know how to take care of him was such a rare diagnosis. And so it was a lot of training and teaching him and how to look at life and how to deal with things with this diagnosis. And in some ways it helped to normalize it a little bit like, hey, we're Hanemans and this is part of us and this is what we deal with. 
And um, that helped with the adoption of our daughter who also has cognitive disabilities. So we all kind of have our own special needs in our home. And I've told my kids, it is not other people's responsibility to know what your needs are. So we educate and we use to the best of our ability, but um, I think that helped him. So he has had by far a much stabler childhood than I did. Um, and, you know, credit to my parents, they did not have the information that we did. And having the diagnosis is very different than just learning about it. Um, so I chose to use that as a gift in a strange way to take my diagnosis and pay it forward and be able to um, help him to not have all of the negative things as I did. Yeah. And that's up. a really beautiful thing, I think, because, you know, there's no, um, there's not really like a great way to spin it. Right. I mean, like if, mm -hmm. I mean, no matter what, if you have VEDS, there's that, like that feeling like, oh, this sucks. If you have a kid with VEDS, it's like, it's devastating. Like there's all of these emotions that come no matter the different, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, whether you're a parent or you have it yourself or you're a parent and you have a kid that has it or, you know, like there's, it all sucks, but yeah. you know, there's something about, I think from the outside looking in, um, about having it and then having a kid with it where you are able to do something that is meaningful for that child's life. And, you know, I think like parents that don't have the condition, they can do the same thing, but in different ways. Like, I think that what I'm trying to get at is that connection there, you know, like I have VEDS, my mom doesn't have VEDS. It, in some ways, you know, she wanted to have VEDS because then, you know, I would have a better picture of what my life might look like and what I might have um, an easier time with and a harder time with and just have that like relatability there. And so I really think it's really, um, you know, for how much you went through, I think it's really beautiful that you were able to take that piece and make his life easier than yours was with not knowing. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. Um, and I have tended to be somebody who um, I try not to dwell on stuff too long and um, stay as positive as possible. Um, I am a fighter in that way. And I do believe that having a diagnosis like this and um, having a child who's had it, it has given me a purpose and a drive. Um, you know, to, I mean, my life matters because I need to be around for him and um, trying to help him normalize um, something that is so difficult to wrap your head around and not feel like it is a death sentence. I, I think that it's easy to feel that way. Um, and I, I would say that there's families that probably do feel like that. And what I do know is that there's been plenty of times where I thought things would turn out way worse than they actually did turn out. And um, with him growing up, um, we had to kind of 
mourn the loss of the idea that he might not live as long as what we would hope. And my husband had to process that he might outlive his child. And I think as adults, you know, that bonded us together in our marriage and that, you know, um, it's one thing for you to manage yourself and stuff, but that's not the regular way about things. You know, you're not supposed to outlive your kids. And um, so we had to surrender that piece over for our sanity. Um, and that's what we chose to do. And we chose to, we chose to really um, dig into our faith and trust that um, we don't have all the answers. And so um, we would take it one step at a time. Yeah. And so this was about, I guess, 20, 24 years ago. 20. Um, it'll be about 21. So he'll, yeah, everything's around his age because we, it was our first year of marriage. And so, yeah, he'll be 21 this summer. Um, so, yeah. And I actually was fairly stable. Um, I didn't have a lot of other complications um, for quite a few years after that. I actually... Um, looking back was quite thankful and about 30 when I turned 30 um, I started having a lot of problems with my bowels and um, I had chronic pain um, from all of the joint problems and so I had to go on narcotics and that wreaked havoc on my um, on my digestive system and so um he was pretty stable all throughout his childhood. And then I had this nice window of time where I, I really, we talked about his birth as the thing, the big thing. But other than that, we hadn't had a lot of other complications. Yeah. So when, so when you were 30, you started having more complications mm -hmm. and I know that you had a pretty long hospital stay during that time. So you want to talk about that some? Yeah. And so um, so from 30 until, so about 2019, I was in the hospital kind of every, I would say every few months. Um, and I was trying to work at that time. I, um, trying to live a normal life. And so, um, I get bowel blockages and stuff and end up in the hospital and stay there for about a week and then, you know, be discharged and stuff. But then, so March, 2019, um, I was having some symptoms of another, what I thought was probably a bowel blockage. And so I went in and I would not leave the hospital for two years and it changed everything for us over this time. So that's been about a year and a half to two years ago. So I went in, um, for surgery, I ended up having complications and what happened is, I had about 40 surgeries, a little over 40 surgeries in two years and lost all of my intestines. Um, they would go in every few days to try to fix perforations. Um, and my intestines would either perforate or die off even during the surgeries. Um, and so I, um, it, it was a horrific time. Um, one of those scenarios that none of us could have been prepared for. I went in and Joel was just learning how to drive. And I came out and he was graduating high school. And um, 
COVID happened in the middle of that. And um, so what would happen is they tried, they couldn't, you know, they'd stabilize me for a little bit and I might be able to go home for a few days, but I could be right back in the hospital. And that's why I say it was a full two years because I couldn't, um, I had horrific pain. Um, I had delirium um, because of the medication. So I would go to sleep and wake up and be in completely different places. And about a year into that, I started spiraling and um, everything became about escaping my situation. And I became suicidal at that point. Um, and my husband looks at back at that time and he says, um, I had quit trying. I just quit. I lost the will to live at that point. I was suffering um, quite, quite a bit. And um, I just didn't see any end in sight. And I just wanted to be relieved from the pain. And um, I just didn't see any way of getting out of it. And um, I saw how it was affecting everybody around me. And while I would stay positive in the hospital, it was at that one year mark that um, I found myself with a combination of meds and stuff, just um, focusing on how I could escape the situation. And how did you, I mean, that is, I mean, I think that for that period of time to be in the hospital and going through this much pain and this much um, just like surgery after surgery and not being able to go home, I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a dark place to be. And how did you, how did you get through that period of time? Cause it was another year before you managed to get out of the hospital, right? Yes. Um, looking back at that, um, and it's important for me to share this. Um, it's such a vulnerable topic and I was, um, I've always been a very honest and upfront person, um, I'd rather just deal with things and not beat around the bush. So I was very honest with my family and my husband and the medical staff, because up until that point, whenever they'd ask those questions about, you know, are you depressed? Do you have little, little live? I, I always joked, I'm trying to stay alive. You know, I'm the opposite of that. And so to find myself actually feeling suicidal, I just, it was part of the process. I just told them. And so, um, I didn't really have a way of, I just didn't want to live. And so I told them and I would, I would ask my doctors, I was so unhealthy emotionally. I would ask my doctors to give me too much medication. And um, I told my husband, I just don't want to live anymore. I just want to go home. And for home, that meant that I would get to go to heaven and I would be free from this body. And, um, that I wouldn't have to be dealing with all of this and the pain and um, just not having any purpose. Um, my entire life was in a hospital or I had severe anxiety um, because I was constantly in this cycle of surgery and complications and being told, I don't think you're going to make it, or he'd pull my husband, my doctors would pull my husband aside and say, I don't think she's going to live through the night. And so we were constantly saying goodbye to each other. And um, I just wanted to escape it. And so my mindset became, 
that is all I could focus on is that I just wanted to escape it. And I felt like everyone would be better off without me, um, that they were suffering too. And I trusted that God would take care of my children and that watching me go through this was worse than if I wasn't going to be there. And for my husband, that he would have some kind of break. And so I happened to be home for a very short period. And from the outside, and this is something that I want to share with anyone who is dealing with someone who is suicidal, None, nothing about my situation had changed, but I started acting more positive. So my husband left me alone for about an hour. Otherwise, I had care 24 hours. They locked everything away that they thought I could use. And so they, it was a very innocent thing. But looking back on that, I acted like I was better because I had a plan. And I remember even telling my nurse, I know how I'm going to do this. I can't do it at the hospital, but there'll be a time that I can, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. And for me, it was like this overwhelming relief. I thought, finally, I can be free from this. And so I ended up finding this opportunity and I was so weak. I barely could even get myself the strength to, to do, to follow through on this. And I had called a friend and told them what I was going to do. And um, they had arranged to call my house in 20 minutes. And they had been along this process and knew how much I was suffering and were heartbroken at my situation, but wanted me to be free as well. And so I did what I thought was getting me out of the situation. And I remember at that time in my faith, really feeling like God was saying, no, it's not your time. And I was adamant that I just wanted to be done. And then I went and got back in bed and fell asleep. And 20 minutes later, my phone rang and I answered. <laughs> <laughs> and I had what was such an overwhelming peace come over me at that point. And I basically surrendered. I surrendered to all of it. And that what I understood for myself was that it's not my time and I don't get to decide. And I think what I wanted was some kind of control over what was happening. And so from that point on, I have made it very intentional, of course, to get mental health help. I'm a big advocate for counseling because of this very scenario. It's daunting at times. And I lost all perspective. I, all it was become about was just escaping my situation. I couldn't see into the future. I had lost all of my hope and there was no getting out of it. And it's a very distorted way of thinking. And I think it's not about trying to hurt other people. For me, it was, I really thought I was helping everybody, including myself. I thought 
this is going to end all the suffering. And of course, we all know that that is not what happens to anybody that's left behind. It's awful. And so I live very intentionally now because of that. And so that was a year in. And so I can tell you that it didn't get easier, but I worked with my doctors to change medications. And um, because of my faith, I let go of trying to control that piece and decided it was easier on me emotionally if I just let God decide. And that gave me, um, just it took the pressure off of me. Um, And then I slowly started working on what I could control. And um, I just shared my situation and um, I kind of got back in the game if you will, and decided if I don't know when this is going to be and um, kind of a little humor with a very difficult, heavy situation, I was able to tell my husband a few months later what I had done. And he gets this smirk on his face when I do things that he thinks like, I know I did something silly. (laughs) And um, we had this good laugh through tears because God provided a way out for me. Um, And I really believe that that was his doing to keep me from knowing that minor piece that could have made it permanent for me. And um, for my husband, you know, to be so sweet and be able to laugh about it in that moment, um, it kind of gave us, like, it helped him to know what was going on because I wasn't I wasn't telling him those pieces and um, it just bonded us together in a different way. And, um, you know, we ended up coming out of this situation so much stronger than when we went in. And I had told my sister at the very beginning, oh, I'll maybe be in the hospital a week or so. And I'm okay if they give me and a colostomy or an ostomy. Like, I think I'm okay with that now. Well, I didn't realize I'd lose all of my intestines and have a permanent ileostomy (laughs) Um, at the end of that. And I can tell you, I feel so much better without my intestines. I don't have the complications. I don't have the just dented belly and I'm not in and out of the hospital. I don't have the complications from them anymore. It's like they were just worn out and they needed to come out. And I'm on TPN, um, the liquid nutrition, um, half 14 hours a day. And I get all of my nutrition and my hydration through a, a permanent, uh, a central line. And um, I can honestly tell you, I would have not known I'd be thankful to lose my intestines or that I would live without them. <laughs> so it usually is quite the topic of conversation with people. Yeah. And when you were in your twenties, like you really wanted that colostomy reverse. You didn't want to live with a colostomy bag. And so right. now, you know, 20 years later, it's like, okay, <laughs> little, I'm, I'm into this now. <laughs> a little perspective change. And so I have a lot of grace. And I think in the support group, I understand. And I, I think we all have to make decisions that are what we need at the time. And I think being a young person, things matter differently. And, you know, add 20 years of life to things, it's stabilized me. It's given me 
um, better quality of life um, once you get through learning how to manage one. Um, I'm very thankful that that's an option for me. Um, so definitely a change in perspective. And, you know, my son kind of wants, he's at a stage where he just wants to um, ignore things and he wants to blend in. And I remember feeling that way um, and just deal with stuff as it happens. But I would like to be more proactive in not having emergencies happen. And, and I know that that's not always preventable um, with feds but it has certainly stabilized me a lot um, coming out of that. Yeah. And I want to thank you for, you know, really sharing everything that you did about that suicide attempt and how you've, like, I think it's important, you know, you talk about it as being vulnerable and I'm really grateful that you can be so vulnerable because I do think that's, you know, there's probably people out there listening to this who have really struggled with that. And I do want to, um, you know, say if anybody out there is struggling with that, like there are resources to help. And uh, I will link, you know, the suicide hotline in the episode show notes, but I really want to thank you, Alyssa, for, for sharing that. And I'm wondering, you know, if you have advice for, you know, someone else dealing with either this FEDS diagnosis or, with feeling the way that you did, um, what is that advice that you have for somebody? Yeah, I, I would really encourage anyone who's struggling to journal and try to remember that we don't always know what's ahead. We can't see the full picture. We only get puzzle pieces. And so if your mindset is going to an extreme type of thinking where there's no solutions other than to end your life, that that is a red flag to reach out and be gracious with yourself um, to find support um, and really find someone who you feel like you can, that they can speak into you about all the reasons help you to um, remember all the reasons that it's worth staying, that it's worth fighting and help to come up with a purpose. I think if we lose the ability in our life to have a purpose, that there's a reason why we are here, um, it can go to dark places. And um, advice, as far as with vets, I think sometimes when we get this diagnosis or you have a really long spell of hard things that it feels like things are never going to get better. It's daunting and overwhelming is that first of all, doctors don't always get it right. And I think it's, it's a delicate issue when doctors repeatedly are telling you that you are not going to live where they don't think you are because ultimately they don't know. And sometimes it turns out different. And, um, so because we rely so heavily on the uh, medical community with this diagnosis, they are, they're amazing advocates for us, but also we need to trust intuition and um, trust our gut sometimes and not focus so much on um, the short term, but that things can turn out different than what we think. And for me, 
um, I had to remember that there were reasons for me to live. And um, beyond just that, I wanted to experience what my family, you know, that my kids and all these experiences, but that um, I wanted to do something that matters. And um, so if I, if I can impart that on one, get, reach out and get help, but find something to help you get past what feels like it, it's an impossible situation. Um, because sometimes it turns out different than what we think it is. And if just hearing that somebody made it through something that feels like it wasn't ever going to end and it did, then that to me is worth remembering. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you bet. Yeah. Is there, um, I know we're nearing the end of our time here. Do you have anything that you want medical professionals to know about what it's like living with vets or, you know, want them to know about or be better about, or, you know, there are medical professionals who listen to the show. Um, one thing recently that has come up and um, I think, so when I go in and I meet new professionals and they read my medical history, which is quite extensive because at mid forties, I have experienced, I think about every complication that you can have with beds, um, as far as dissections and everything. And um, I tend to have professionals say things like, um, just they come across as really, like they're telling me, oh, um, you've got really complex medical history or, um, they're more overwhelmed, I think, sometimes by my diagnosis than I am. And it's like they're telling me what I already know. And so I've had them, I've had professionals say things that are um, kind of um, insensitive without meaning to. Um, and I know that that's, I think, part of just the overwhelming nature of this diagnosis. But um, you know, just because I know a lot about my diagnosis doesn't mean that I need to be reminded that. Um, oh, it's really horrible what you're going, what you've gone through. Yes, I do know that. Um, <laughs> and um, just because I think that unintentionally um, they don't know what to say. So sometimes just not feeling like you need to um, point out the obvious, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, I have, for example, I had an eye doctor tell me, oh, there's this complication that you can have, but you're not going to live long enough to have it be a problem anyways, or, you know, oh, why did focus on this when you have all these problems? And I've kind of just been taken aback by <laughs> <laughs> like, well, um, you're right that this, it's a lot, but, um, on the same sense, you know, we're all human. And, um, what I like to point out is, you know, yes, I've been through all of these things and I'm still here. Yeah. And, um, and I'm really grateful to be able to share that. And I think sometimes it's humbling to doctors to see what you can survive through. And I think it's an opportunity to just marvel at what miraculous bodies we have and how they can function with something like this diagnosis quite amazingly. Um, and so I think we're very fortunate in the vets community to have some phenomenal doctors. And my favorite ones are the ones who are just very upfront and forward and have a plan. Um, and they're willing to brainstorm 
with me um, and ask questions um, instead of just getting overwhelmed by the complexities. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really, that's a lot of great information for medical professionals listening to hear. Um, and, and I really hope that they take that to heart. And I hope that that ophthalmologist, uh, <laughs> I kind of hope that they hear this too. <laughs> um, that's not a nice thing to say to anybody. Um, it's, uh, yeah. it's wild. I, you know, I did think of after that two-year hospital stay, you were very positive before that period of time and you've become very positive after. And I just, you know, what are the things in your life that bring you joy that you are happy that you are still here to experience? Yeah, I think that's a great um, question to ask. Um, I, one of the things that I do is I lead a chronic pain group. Um, and I was a participant first, but um, it helps me to impart and share um, the ways that I get through life and manage that part of my diagnosis with other people. And we have a really diverse group. Um, so it's not just the um, vets people. Um, it can be multiple surgeries and things. Um, having a purpose of any kind, um, being able to reach out, just like doing this podcast. Um, I, with my children, I have recommitted to using my time. Um, I know we didn't get to talk about filing for disability, but I use my time now to just spend with my daughter and um, do all the fun things that she wants to do. Um, my husband and I choose to travel. And I know that's something that's scary, but we don't put things off. Um, and so, um, I try to experience new places and um, I keep myself busy um, balancing, doing things that, so traveling, spending time with friends, um, doing um, my chronic pain group, um, and then helping other people or just being an encouragement. And then, um, you know, I, I really... I try to just make sure that um, I'm not staying home. So I, I do rest um, and I do give myself time to give my body what it needs. Um, but I just try to make sure that I have something um, to get out of the house for, um, that I'm not isolating um, and spending too much time by myself. So whether I'm going out to lunch with friends or going to the movies or um, I guess like it's like living a second life. And um, if you have the chance to do it over again, that's kind of what I feel like I get to do. I obviously still have to manage my beds, but um, I don't want to be back in that space again. And so um, I just try to be grateful and fill my time with stuff that I, I try to recognize, oh, this is something that I would have missed out on. And so I'm so grateful that I get to do it and share that hope with people that um, it turns out different sometimes than what we think. And um, I'm really grateful that the doctors got it wrong and that I didn't follow, I didn't um, complete that, you know, that time in my life. And now I get to live it out a different way. And so kind of like writing your own story, it was like a plot twist. And um, I decided instead of um, 
So instead of focusing on all of the things that are scary and difficult about beds, I focus on all the things that I can do with them and manage my meds and um, do stuff that feels good and swim. And um, we each have those things in our life that feel good to us. And so it's kind of a fill in the blank thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for sharing your story. And I know that we could probably spend a lot of time talking about a lot of the other things that you've been through as well. And so maybe we'll have a follow-up episode at some point and dive into some of those other topics that we didn't get to touch on today. But I really, really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your experience. Thank you so much, Katie. And I sure appreciate you doing this as well and um, spending your efforts and purpose um, with vets as well. I think it's a gift that you share with other people. So thank you for letting me be part of it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Staying Connected featuring Alyssa Hanneman. And thank you, Alyssa, for sharing your story on the show so openly. If you are in need of help or are struggling with suicidal thoughts or intent, there are resources that can help you. In the United States, call 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you are outside of the U.S., I've linked a list of hotlines in the episode show notes. Staying Connected will be back in the summer, and this upcoming season will include not only interviews with members of our VEDS community, but also interviews with members of our broader community affected by related conditions to VEDS, like Marfan Syndrome. If you want to get involved in our community, there are quite a few events you can participate in in the next few weeks to raise awareness of VEDS, meet others, and learn more from the experts. There have been several Walks for Victory already, hosted by the Marfan Foundation around the United States, but the season is not over and there are still more coming up in June. These are fundraisers and they're an opportunity to connect with others in the community. So you can join community members at these events in Seattle, Washington, New York City, New York, Boston, New England, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Chicago, Illinois, and Ann Arbor, Michigan in June. I've created a team VEDS for the Seattle Walk for Victory, and I hope to meet those of you in the Pacific Northwest at this event. It is right around the corner next week on June 10th. Also right around the corner is the Foundations Conference held this year in Chicago, July 13th to 16th. This is an opportunity to learn from the experts and meet others in the community, and I know that there are a number of community members going. The Ehlers-Danlos Society will be hosting a VEDS camp in partnership with the VEDS movement the weekend prior to the Foundation Conference at Camp Joy in Ohio. This is July 7th to 9th and should also be well attended. Links to more information about these events can be found in the episode show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to Staying Connected on your podcast player so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media, which helps us raise awareness of vets together. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon. Thanks so much, and I will see you in the summer. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.